Hi, my name's Clayton, and you're listening to the Isaiah 43 Podcast, where we explore how God has formed us, redeemed us, and how He calls us today. Each week we will journey through Scripture to understand all that God has done, and what exactly His call is for our lives today. This is week 27. In this Bible study week, we continue our study of the Reformed Doctrine of Tulip. We have been studying this topic over the last several Bible study weeks. The last topic we explored was in week 25, where we discussed the U in the acronym. Those of you who have been following along in this study will remember that the U stands for unconditional election. So this week, we come to the L. The L in TULIP stands for limited atonement. This is one of the five points that even Calvinist and Reformed theologians often wrestle with. When you hear people say something like, oh, I'm a four-point Calvinist, it's almost always because they do not adhere to this belief of limited atonement. However, in my personal experience, I have learned that generally, those who wrestle with this wrestle with it because it has not been properly explained to them. So what exactly is limited atonement? Well, before we dive into what it is and the scriptural basis for it, it's most appropriate for us to pray. So, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we glorify you for this day and all that you do. We thank you for the revelation of your word to show us who you are. We thank you for the awesomeness that, the awesome feeling that when we dive into your word, your word speaks to us and it soothes us and brings us great peace, Father. We thank you and praise you for your forgiveness of sins and your mercies that renew every morning. And we thank you that you died for us so that we could have a right relationship with you, O God. As we go through this study, open our hearts so that we may receive your wisdom, that we may understand that this is true doctrine. This is the biblical doctrine, Lord. This is found, found rooted deeply into your word. Let us see the truth in this as we study it, O God. And grant us this wisdom this day, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, what is limited atonement, and what does it mean for us? Remember how I stated from the beginning of this segment that we've been doing that each point flows nicely into the next point? It's no different here. As we listen to and study what theologians have had to say on this before diving into the scriptural evidence, pay attention to what is being said and how it ties into unconditional election. Duane, I hope I'm saying that right, Edward Spencer, pastor of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas, has a book titled Tulip, the Five Points of Calvinism in the Light of Scripture. Within the book, Spencer writes, quote, Atonement is for the elect only, since Christ died only for those whom the Father gave him to be his bride. Only the saints, or elect ones, are ever said to be beloved of God, for they alone are the objects of his saving grace. The Calvinist reasons that if Christ died for all, then all will be saved. If only the elect are to be saved, then Christ died for them, and them alone. Although it is true that the blood of Christ is surely sufficient in value to atone for all, Still, it is obviously effective for those who are saved by his unmerited favor. End quote. So, what does all that mean? 
Well, it means something very simple, actually. It means that our blessed Savior's blood was spilled only for those who God elected before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus died only for the men and women who God the Father has given him. The opposite viewpoint, the Arminian viewpoint, is that since God loves everyone, Christ died for all of mankind. Another point that should be made when discussing limited atonement is that Christ's death on the cross made salvation possible for those who chose to receive it and made salvation de- salvation definite for those chosen by God. It is sufficient to save sinners and made definite only for those God has elected. It is for this reason that some Calvinists and Reformed theologians have decided to use definite atonement rather than limited atonement. When discussing this to prevent any confusion about what they believe about the atonement of Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famed preacher of preachers in 1858, delivered a sermon where he said the following on the definite or limited atonement of Christ. Quote, We hold, we are not afraid to say that we believe that Christ came into this world with the intention of saving a multitude which no man can number. And we believe that as the result of this, every person for whom he died must, beyond the shadow of a doubt, be cleansed from sin and stand washed in blood before the Father's throne. We do not believe that Christ made any effectual atonement for those who are forever damned. We dare not think that the blood of Christ was ever shed with the intention of saving those whom God foreknew never could be saved. And some of whom were even in hell when Christ, according to some men's account, died to save them. C.H. Spurgeon was a fantastic preacher with many resources for you to find and dive deeper into biblical theology. However, for this episode's sake, we are only concerned with what he has spoken for us here. In this brief excerpt, we see very clearly that there is no doubt that Christ's death made all of those who died for, die, he died for cleansed from sin so that we can be made right with God the Father in heaven. Spurgeon shows us that it is irrational to think that God would shed his blood for those who would never want anything to do with him and who never wanted to be saved. But as we have seen and been saying since the beginning, none of this matters if there is no scriptural basis. So what biblical evidence is there for the doctrine of limited or definite atonement? As we will see, there is plenty. Just because I felt like switching things up this week, Let us read from the NLT, or New Living Translation. As a reminder, I have done my utmost to ensure that none of these verses are taken out of context. Of the verses that we will be reading, there will only be one that will be necessary to expound upon further. We will begin our readings in the Gospel according to John. 1 John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me. Just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. While we are here in John, let us go to John chapter 17, verse 9, where Christ prays only for the elect and not for the sake of the world. Again, John chapter 17, verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. Now we will turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which reads, But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we are here in Romans, let's jump over to chapter 8, 
When we read the verses that we're about to read, it's important to keep in mind the context in which Paul is writing. It'd be very easy for us to take one of these verses out of context to support the Arminian theological viewpoint, but doing so means that we have lost our context. So notice, while we read verses 30 through 33, that Paul is writing specifically about the chosen ones of God, not the world. So, Romans chapter 8, verses 30 through 33. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares, who dares accuse us when God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Next, we come to Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 reads, May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. In keeping with the order of the books of the Bible, we will go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. From there, we journey onwards to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Always thanking the Father, He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people, who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Next is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be His own people. And now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses, verse 13. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. We are all, always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. And now we come to the verse where I want to dive a little bit deeper into because many believers, many believe actually that this does not support the Reformed theological position. But first, let's read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. For our explanation of these verses, I want us to turn to Dr. James White. Dr. White writes in his book titled, The Sovereign Grace of God, A Biblical Study of Doctrines of Calvinism, quote, we must always apply sound rules of exegesis to the scriptures. Peter accepted the Old Testament's teaching about the natures of God. 
He knew Psalms, Psalm 135, verse 6, and Psalm 115, verse 3, and the truth that whatever God pleases, He does. And since we have already seen that repentance is the grace of God, could He not give repentance to anyone He chooses? Finally, the context of the passage must be consulted. Second Peter is written to the elect, as Second Peter first, chapter 1, verse 1 shows. In chapter 3, Peter is explaining the delay of the parousia, that is, the coming of Christ. He explains that Christ will indeed return, and that the delay is in order that God may gather his people. He is patient with you, Peter writes to God's people, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The everyone is in reference to all of God's elect. The only reason that you are reading this book, or listening to this podcast, nearly 2,000 years later, is because... Because God has been patient, giving the world all this time so that all of God's elect could be gathered in. End quote. And so, dear Christian, you who are listening to this podcast, Christ has paid a real powerful death for you to atone for your sins so that you may be right with God. God, infinite in his mercies, is being patient with us. He wants you and I to repent of our sins and put them behind us. Nonetheless, though, limited or def- definite atonement, can certainly be a difficult theology to agree with. However, I do believe that when we look at the light of Scripture, we will very clearly see that Christ died only for the elect, chosen ones of God, and not the whole world. If you still need peace and comfort over this, then pray and use the resources that I have mentioned throughout this episode to help you. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. God bless. God bless.